Solving the following riddle will reveal the awful secret behind the universe. Assuming you do not go utterly mad in the attempt, say you have an axe, just a cheap one from Home Depot. On one bitter winter day, you use said axe to behead a man. Don't worry, the man's already dead. Or maybe you should worry, because you're the one who shot him. He'd been a big, twitchy guy with veiny skin stretched over swollen biceps, tattoo of a swastika on his tongue, and you're chopping off his head because even with eight bullet holes in him, you're pretty sure he's about to spring back to his feet, eat the look of terror right off your face. You now have a broken axe, so you go to the hardware store, explaining away the dark reddish stains on the handle as barbecue sauce. The repaired axe sits undisturbed in your house until the next spring, when one rainy morning. So, you grab your trusty axe and chop the thing into several pieces. On the last blow, however, of course a chipped head means yet another trip to the hardware store. As soon as you get home with your newly headed axe, though, you meet the reanimated body of the guy you beheaded last year. Only he's got a new head, stitched on with what looks like plastic weed trimmer line, and wears that unique expression of you're the man who killed me last winter resentment that one so rarely encounters in everyday life. So you brandish your axe. That's the axe that slayed me. Is he right? This episode of the podcast Under the Stairs is brought to you in conjunction with Legion Podcast Network. Check out the podcast Under the Stairs and many other shows over at legionpodcast.com Welcome to the podcast Under the Stairs Hi everyone and welcome to the podcast Under the Stairs episode number 72 I'm your host Duncan McLeish and welcome to the show Episode number 72 kicks off the first um, episode of our new annual December Listener Choice Month. That's right, throughout this month and all Decembers moving forwards, you guys, the listeners, will have final say and control over what movies are discussed on the podcast Under the Stairs for a full month. Um, We put this out through a series of polls in the last two to three weeks to ask you guys what movies you would like us to discuss over this month and um, we have had some rather interesting results back including this show, this very first show to kick it off. Um, I asked for the, the suggestion of a double bill of movies that you would like to hear discussed on this show and uh, there was tons of suggestions the one that won out overall though was John Dies in the End uh, directed by Don Coscarelli from 2012 and David Cronenberg's Naked Lunch from 1991 so coming up later on the show I will be joined by Bo Ranstall and we will take a, a close look at those movies and give our opinions and the only way you can do on the podcast under the stairs so that conversation will be coming up later on in this show and stick around for it because it was a blast I'd like to take this opportunity right at the start of the show though to thank those people out there that left some feedback for the show on iTunes Um, I logged in just over the weekend there and checked and there was I think about 4 or 5 new 5 star reviews 
Um, so I'd really like to thank those that did it. Unfortunately, I don't know who those people are because it's nicknames, it's iTunes nicknames up there. But thank you very much for leaving those reviews. Your words were incredibly kind. I'm not deserving of them, but thank you very much anyway. Um, if you're a listener out there that listens to the show on iTunes um, and uh, have a couple of minutes spare, the best way, one of the best ways to support this show is to take a couple of minutes to go to the podcast page and actually leave some reviews if they were more five star reviews for example like the ones we've already had the more of them we get the higher up the ratings we get pushed higher up the charts and the more likely it is that people will come across and check out this show which would be fantastic Um, but yeah thank you very much for the kind words Uh, there's a couple of shows still to do in this year so uh, next week um, another listener suggested episode myself and Ryan Lewis from Grave Shift Radio will be sitting down to discuss your choice of Christmas horror movie Black Christmas from the 1970s and um, then we have a commentary to to uh, basically bring in the Christmas cheer um, assuming everything goes according to plan myself, The Baz and Dave Buchanan from Rock and Roll Reviews will be discussing pieces from 1982 I cannot wait for that fucking show and like I said before if for whatever reason the hiatus that Baz is taking from the show just now extends to Christmas then I will get another weird sort of group of people to come in and discuss another movie um, and we'll put that out as a commentary so it definitely will be a commentary this year from Christmas hopefully it will be pieces uh, I just want to thank everyone for the kind words about our brand new website. I've had quite a lot of feedback from you guys uh, by email and by personal message. And um, thank you. You guys helped fund that website. And uh, hopefully you're enjoying it. It's kind of quirky. I'll be hopefully going to add more content as time goes on to it. But at the moment, it's all there. If you are at work and you don't have access to iTunes or anything but have access to the web, you can actually listen to the show. Uh, via Stitcher directly on the homepage for, for, for the website so um, I've heard a couple of people have been checking the show out that way and I can only thank you very much for checking it out making use of the website um, the posters for the podcast under the stairs ones designed by the horror artist extraordinaire Mr Graham Humphreys are also over there and you can buy them directly on the website now and um, I'll get them posted out uh, it's unlikely now if you buy one that you will get it for Christmas though just because you're not leaving me a lot of time but if you're in the UK possibly I don't know if you're in the States unlikely so yeah uh, that was just a quick introduction I really want to get into this show because uh, surprise surprise Bo Ransdell's on it and the show runs long uh, you know what it's like when me and Bo sit down and chat you'd think we wouldn't have that much to say considering we do another show together but when you get us talking about two really interesting movies like John Dies at the End and especially the Naked Lunch um, review coming up later on in this show uh, it is pretty spectacular it's one of my favourite conversations I've had about a movie in a while so hopefully you guys will check out that and enjoy it. So um, with that in mind, I'm going to take a very short break just now. You're going to hear promos for shows that I love. And when I return after this break, I will be introducing you to my guest, Mr. Bo Ransdell, right after this. Wow. Do you like movie reviews that are insightful, thought-provoking, and delivered by somebody who's trained to critically dissect every aspect of a motion picture? without ever having to use obscenities. Then you've got the wrong f***ing show. Kruger Nation Horror Podcast is ready to feed your slasher movie and exploitation needs. There'll be more blood, expletives, and titties 
than you can shake your grandma's beetle flaps at. Visit www.kruegernation.com. Seventy-two movies that shocked a nation and made an infamous list the video nasties. Hi, I'm Duncan McLeish and you can join me and my co-host Andy Blockley Hello, hello As we chat about the 72 films, reviewing them all from the Video Nasty List live on our podcast Tell them about it, Andy Okay, 1982, 20,000 films were seized in London alone because they were too nasty to be watched Come and find out why That's right, the show's called Doing the Nasty Podcast You can find it exclusively on the Horrorphilia Network of Podcasts Come and check us out And welcome back. So, this is the first Listener's Choice episode of the month of December. The new segment that we're running in December. From now on, annually, you have the power, listeners. And I threw out some suggestions. The first suggestion I threw out was your dream double bill to hear talked about on the show. And there were tons of suggestions out there. I casually, off the cuff, more because... It seemed like a really obvious double bill had put in there a couple of suggestions myself. One of them was John Dies at the End in Naked Lunch. And surprise, surprise, that one out. With no interference at all from myself, that one out. Now that I've said that there may have been potential interference, you will now think that there was. But there wasn't, honest. Scout's honour, even though I wasn't a scout. Um, so yeah, that one out. So this is the first episode and this is the one we'll be covering. John Dies at the End from 2012 and Naked Lunch from 1991. I had to find someone who could sit down and discuss these movies um, and not be grossed out by some of the content. Someone that's made of tougher stuff. An American. Um, someone that lives... Yeah, <laughs> yeah goddamn right. But I feel like in the background there should be the Star Spangled Banner playing in the distance. Like a, a 21 gun The Battle Hymn of the Republic or something, <laughs> yeah, yeah. As of course my very good friend, colleague over at Duncan and Bo comes correct. Uh, the man, the man, Mr. Bo Ransdell. How are you doing, sir? I am doing great. Uh, I, I'm really, like, I like both of these films for entirely different reasons, despite their similarities. So in preparation, uh, you know, I poured myself uh, a tall cup of coffee. Uh, I dropped a couple of tabs of acid in there, and then I also just a, a little pinch of a fish paralyzer as well. Uh, and now that's starting to kick in, so th these movies are making a whole lot more sense to me now. Yeah, yeah, like, um, I, yeah, I, I, all it's done is inspired me. A naked lunch, and we'll get on to it. I, I mean, I mean, both these. The cool thing is, both these movies are based on novels, um, which many people were said were unfilmable. Um, and I I have read John Dies at the End. I've never read Naked Lunch, and I, I was watching the I have the Criterion um, Blu-ray of it, and I was watching the documentary behind the making of where the the author was sitting with Cronenberg, and the two of them were just discussing how they chose. There was kind of conscious decision to choose um, to steer away from the book, but keep elements of the book, but kind of bring in things from uh, Burroughs' own biography as well as other little bits and bobs. It's a kind of collaborative effort to basically make this movie and um, the more people were talking about how unfilmable the original book was, the more I was like, I need to read this book. So um, actually I've, I've purchased myself a copy this morning so it's, it's on its way from Amazon. I should have it in the next two days so I actually can't wait 
to read it. But John, John dies at the end. There's another book that is that was exactly the same thing was said about it. This is an unfilmable book. So it's quite interesting. You're an author, Bo. So um, and you have wrote things that have become films. Yeah, yeah. That that's all true. Surprisingly. <laughs> well, what's um, your take? I well, see. I read John dies at the end as well, mm-hmm. and. I have not read Naked Lunch, but I, I was going to say, Duncan, we need to get you on the Kindle app because that way you don't have to wait two days for delivery of a thing. Yeah, but it's the, just uh, <laughs> instantly in your hands. You yeah, can, I do you have. You could be reading a, it now. Yeah, I do have a Kindle, actually, and I could have done that, Bo, but I tend to find that, and I'm not. I'm not just. I'm, see, when it comes to the books. And you're going to hate me for this because you are an author and I feel like really shitty about this right now. But see, when it comes to electronic versions of books, I'm more likely to steal them. I'm like really... The temptation is far too easy to just steal an online book than it is to actually buy a physical copy of a book, which I do enjoy. I do enjoy looking at my, my bookcase and seeing lots of hardback books there. One, it makes me feel more important about myself. But sure, two, there is sure. something that I, I'm not against Kindle against Kindles. They're great for traveling. I don't just pick my Kindle up in the house. If I'm going to pick up like something to read in the house, it tends to be a physical copy as opposed to a digital copy. Digital copies definitely for when I'm traveling. So, yeah, I, I mean that's all ridiculous. But uh, <laughs> because, all right, because I'm the same way. I, I do like physical copies of books, but I've got like two bookcases filled now. Oh yeah. And I don't want to buy a third bookcase. I'm, at some point, I'm probably going to have to. But I find I, I find Kindle. First of all, it's cheaper to buy a Kindle version of a book than a physical copy. As indeed, yeah. So so your thievery is doubly bad. <laughs> and and secondly, uh, yeah, like you said, the portability of it being able to, no matter where I am, I have my library in my hand, mm-hmm. and I I like that quite a bit. But uh, but anyway, the point being, not not your faults, Duncan. We'll get to those <laughs> again later. But the uh, so the, the the stories we're talking about, yes, they they were deemed unfilmable, and I don't think, and you know, by Cronenberg's own admission, and I I believe Coscarelli said much the same, that they're not filming the books, certainly not as written. Yeah. They are filming excerpts of the book. They're trying to craft a different kind of narrative from two books that are, you know, in the case of Naked Lunch, I haven't read it, but, you know, the criticism of it that I've read, uh, and I don't mean that derogatory, I mean literalism that I've read, has basically said, you know, there's really no through line. It's a lot of vignettes all set in and around this inner zone mm-hmm. uh, world. Um, whereas John Dice at the End, which I have read, is just, I mean, it's such a big story and it bounces from place to place and, and that kind of thing. So you've got to create, you know, a story that makes sense in 90 minutes or two hours. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, the nonsense that is John Dice at the End from cover to cover. And, I, you know, I I think one of these films is more successful than the other, uh, certainly, at, at crafting a, a new narrative out of that. But... Mm-hmm. You know, I think they're both certainly valiant efforts, and I like them both for entirely different reasons. Yeah, I think um, the way the movie climate is just now anyway, uh, ideally what you would want for something like John Dies at the End would either be... It'd be perfect for TV, actually, when you think about it. Um, 
the the way it's set, the way the stories are told is a series of different flashbacks that all connect in through this idea of one person telling their story to a, a journalist. Um, it would make sense on TV in the movie world. It would make sense as some sort of maybe two three part movie. You know, like a, like almost like a trilogy. But the the climate being the way it is and Coscarelli knowing this directly. Um, having suffered these things in the past, um, there's no guarantee. Like, if you put your eggs in your one basket to try and do something like that, and the first movie's not necessarily all that successful, it takes a whole hell of a lot of time to get that next one, um, if it ever arrives. So, yeah, I think I think when it comes to it, I mean, we'll, we'll get into talking about John Dies at the end, and we will compare it to the book because we've both read it. But the, the, at at some point you need to make that decision of you know I have a window of like you say an hour and a half, two hours tops in which to get my movie, get the point over, get the ideas of maybe even the original novel over in a way which people will feel engaged and enjoy it and um, at some point you need to start attacking it with like the pair of cutting scissors to cut out things that are not necessary books are completely different than than movies they're completely different mediums so um I just thought I hadn't thought originally I'd picked the two as a <laughs> as a partnership of movies. Generally down to the fact that both of them have quite a lot of bug imagery in them. Um, and that was where I was going for it. And then obviously it's funny when you look at them through the, the microscope a bit more, the, they they do have things that parallel both stories. Now Bo, my friend. Yes. Um, this has been a very long way of me introducing the fact that you are a podcaster as well that have been on this show many, many times, so people should know that. You're a busy, busy man. Um, you are currently doing Duncan and Bo Comes Correct. You are also doing the Shodcast. Um, you have projects upcoming, which I don't know if we can officially announce yet, so I'll just leave that as a uh, one of these like oh, a, a little morsels Maybe, yeah. of... As a teaser, I will say I, the book I'm currently reading is a physical book, and it is uh, the like '70s biography of H.P. Lovecraft, Ooh. and that will uh, that that will uh, certainly inform uh, <laughs> upcoming work I do. Yes, yeah, and um, I, people will be able to check out that show uh, as long uh, along with this show, the Shodcast, and Duncan and Bo Come Correct over on Legion Podcast, which you really did. Like, uh, I sometimes kind of gloss over this, but it is worth noting that you put a hell of a lot of work into that site and communicating with all the different podcasters out there. And whilst we're at the end of the year, this is a, the, the kind of the point of time that you want to look back over and and see who has helped you, who has not helped you, you know, these sort of things. And I, I, Your I, list of enemies, yes, yeah, I'm my, familiar. My, yeah, my very long list of enemies, but uh, it gets longer every year. Um, it's, but yeah, I, I think it's worth, j- just before we, 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 we take a short break, it's worth noting that you do a fantastic job over there um, and can't thank you enough for, for having this show amongst some incredible talent over there. I think Legion in the last year has really, it's almost beefed up like it's on steroids uh, with the talent pool over there of, of the shows, a lot of new shows coming over, but some of the shows that are on that network have really come into their own in this last year, and I like to think it's because of the all-encompassing family environment that you provide as our, our Fura. I mean, leader, leader. <laughs> yeah, you're required to say all those things. I appreciate it uh, very much. It, it like it, it was a lot of work up front. Now it has been less so because of the work done up front. But 
Um, yeah, I'm very proud of it. I'm, I'm very pleased. And, and uh, sort of the, not only is there legionpodcasts.com, but there is sort of the sister site, which is sdfgaming.com, which is kind of the home of the shotcast, even though it, it appears both places. But that, you know, it, it <laughs> that was the, the thing where it was like, I can't host all the video that we're going to be producing for that site. Uh, so that's going to be its own site. And, um, but yeah, the, the Legion podcast stuff, the, the, like the shows that we picked up this year, I've been really not just pleased with, like they're shows that I love listening to for entirely personal reasons besides just, you know, the, the grinchity, uh, desire to have good shows that, you know, I can, uh, kind of put under my umbrella or whatever. Um, but you know, like a podcast on Haunted Hill is really good and mm -hmm. has gotten, even better and and kiss the goat and uh girls will be ghouls is like a, a show unlike any podcast that i'm aware of it's um, a great show it's a really it is. it's it's such a, i i love the i love the perspective i love the the movie choices um and i, I just like you say is unlike any show that i've heard before out there um and yeah, I, I really like them, I, and we're we're quite we're quite socially active with them on Twitter. They're they're a good laugh over there. So uh, that's that's one that when I know when that show is dropping, I'm like that. That's straight away jumps to the top of my, my my download queue. Yeah, and and like you said, they're they're great to work with. Like uh, you know, like I, I go back and forth with with Zena a fair amount, and and she's she is that perfect combination of being completely sincere about her love for horror films mm -hmm. and, and absolutely hilarious. Yeah. Definitely. Um, <laughs> and yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it's like as much as I wish I could take credit for a lot more than I, I do. Um, it's at the end of the day, it's the podcasters who produce the shows and you know, I mean, you're obviously I've, I've said this, I don't know, maybe once, uh, <laughs> But, but you know, your shows, uh, you, you know, whether or not it's on this network, like, I, I will unreservedly recommend anything you do, whether we host it or not. Oh, thank um, you. You know, the, uh, the Doing the Nasty podcast, which we don't host on Legion, but are, is a fantastic show, even though it's, it's sadly coming to an end. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like, the work that you've done with Podcast Under the Stairs and, and all the other shows that we mentioned, in addition to you know, like long running shows like devour the podcast and, um, you know, all of that stuff. And, uh, Oh, Oh, I got to give a quick shout out to black Annis, which, you know, has been on a bit of a hiatus, unfortunately for personal reasons. Uh, but that is a show that like came out of the gate sounding great. Yeah, definitely. And, um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, like, it's a real pleasure for me in addition to, you know, the, the work that you put into it. But if you, my, my attitude is if you enjoy doing it, then, then that, is its own reward and um and it's been more and more true as time has gone on because every every new show that comes out or every uh you know like cinema beef and and the two drink minimum po podcast which have been around since you know before i ran the network mm -hmm. um have you know like take it a break and come back and come back in in what i think is a better way mm -hmm. and like all that stuff is not me, you know, I, I can't claim any credit for that. That's just the work of, you know, like Gary and Gil and, and all the guys who, who actually do the hard work of, of those shows. And, you know, and, and curiously that like 
the thread of Jamie Jenkins that runs through all that stuff as well. It's, <laughs> you know, it is kind of a, a secret joy of mine as well. And um, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it it it's yeah. I mean, I, I it, it is a labor of love for sure. And and I, you know, we've been kind of working on some stuff. So I think uh, I think next year I just about got a mobile app uh, ready to go. Uh, so that you can just download a Legion podcast app and it will tell you when new shows are around and, and give you like instant links to the articles and reviews and stuff like that. So um, I think that is going to be coming within the next 90-ish days or fantastic, so. Fantastic, sir. Fantastic. <laughs> I know, I know. It's, it, it's, I've, I've got the, uh, the test app on my phone and I just have to check in occasionally to see like, oh, what's broken and needs to be fixed before <laughs> we make this. <laughs> Uh, a real thing but uh and and ideally that will be completely free of charge so wicked uh, wicked i know right but like like sometimes it doesn't look like it but i, I seriously am doing shit a lot about it. <laughs> i try to give the illusion of laziness but in reality my life is not such that i can be that lazy all the time as much as i would like to be yeah well you you got um notice to do this show with me i think two days notice <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, Bo, go and help me, please. But <laughs> I, I can refuse you nothing, sir. You could, like, if you wanted, like, a, a kidney, <laughs> God help you if you if I was the person you had to turn to because these old busted things aren't going to last you for long. But, <laughs> you know, uh, how could I ever say no to, uh, to you? And also, when you come to me with, like, John dies at the end in Naked Lunch, it's like, oh, okay, well... Let me let me slip into my uh, hallucinogens and I'll be right with you. Yes, it's the beauty of like I've always said it. The beauty of doing like the podcast under the stairs is that the community of of listeners over on the Facebook page, even though this was one that I I put forward, it was surprising how quick people jumped behind. It was like actually I want to hear that show, um, which I, I think is testament to see just in general. See like the, the, the listeners of this show, listeners of shows on on the network and things like that, incredibly knowledgeable, like scarily knowledgeable, and um, I think that translates through to the fact that like some shows maybe don't have the opportunity to to pick a weird and wonderful combination of movies to discuss in fear that the listeners might might almost rebel on some level and say well I don't want to hear that um, and I, I've been afforded that that enviable position that I know that occasionally these curveball kind of shows come out of, no, out of nowhere kind of fall in my lap but I know for a fact that when when they're recording they go out there people will listen to them and whether they agree or not they'll still listen and check them out and hopefully be entertained because that's that's the point and this first movie we're going to talk about god damn is it entertaining um, yes it yes, is right out of the gate. Absolutely. Stra- straight away. Um, and it happens to, to come from a director who's maybe not got the most movies out there of the masters of horror. He might not have put out, in fact, I think he probably has put out the least mo- uh, amount of movies uh, in the genre out of that collective group. But I will say this the guy knows how to make a fucking movie and knows how to make a movie enjoyable, creepy. And just a wee bit weird. Um, so we're going to take a very short break just now. You're going to hear promos for shows on the network. You're going to hear the trailer for our first movie review, which is John Dies at the End, directed by Don Coscarelli. Um, it came out in 2012. Myself and Bo will discuss that movie right after this. Wow. 
You know those old-time radio shows with the married couples who bicker about the kids and the car and the neighbors? Our podcast is a lot like that. Yeah. Well, if you replace the kids, the car, and the neighbors with devil movies, theology, and vodka. My name is X. And I'm Cootie. And we are the hosts of Kiss the Goat, a different kind of movie podcast. Every episode, we review a devil movie. You know, possessions, exorcisms, the Antichrist, and we stomp a mud hole in it, even if we like it. We are huge fans of comparative religion, and we love to compare real belief systems with what Hollywood seems to think belief systems are. But don't think we're not civic-minded, because each episode includes our Satan in the News segment, where our fearless correspondent, Sin Fallon, documents the eternal struggle between good and evil. And, as high-functioning alcoholics, we give every movie its own drinking game, so that you can enjoy the movie just like we did, ripped to the tits. <laughs> and there is ever so much more to the show than that, and let me tell you, it ain't for kids. Hell, it ain't for most adults. But it might be for you. You won't know until you listen to Kiss the Goat exclusively on the Legion Network of Podcasts. That's Kiss the Goat. We're the lighter side. Of the dark side. <laughs> Someday you will face the unimaginable. It is physically impossible to avoid it. <laughs> Mr. Wong, this slack stuff, this sauce. You can see things you shouldn't be able to. If I show you what's in this container, you'll never feel at one with the human race. I realized all at once, my one chance to save the universe lay inside this bottle. It'd be opening doors to other worlds, man. What is that stuff, John? The soy sauce? That stuff. I'm remembering things that haven't happened yet. We were chosen by the soy sauce. So you guys are what? Some kind of spiritualist exorcist? Something like that. The director of Phantasm and Bubba Hotep. I suppose you are wondering where you are. I'm gonna guess we're in an alternate universe of some kind. <laughs> Warns you to brandish your weapons. Can I buy you a beer? Lock your doors. That's the axe that slayed me. And stay away. Ooh, from red meat. Don't spoil the ending. I suppose you're wondering why I'm here. I suppose you're wondering what I'm doing with this can of gasoline. John! 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 John dies at the end. Dave, this is John. Where are you right now? Where are you? Heaven? Is there any way that you can steal my body? What? 
And welcome back. So you've just had the trailer for the first movie review. This is John Dies at the End from 2012, directed by Don Coscarelli, based on the book John Dies at the End, written by David Wong. Um, this movie stars Chase Williamson, Rob Mees, Paul G. Oh, I love Paul Giamatti. Everything. Uh, no matter what he's in, I think he, he always brings just an A game to anything. Yeah, and he's, he's also an EP on this movie, which is, is crazy. Which is awesome, yeah. I mean, there was a rumour for, like, this is on a side straight out the gate, but, uh, but there was a rumour that he was, that uh, Coscarelli was going to do a sequel to Bubble Hotep and Giamatti was going to replace um, Bruce Campbell. Yeah, which, I mean, God knows, especially with the, the release of... Uh, Ash versus Evil Dead. I have my my love of Bruce Campbell is greater than it maybe ever has been. <laughs> he's so fucking good. He's, he makes it look so. The thing is, he, he's his comic timing is ridiculous. It's like yeah. it's arguably uh, his comic timing is arguably better than I would say ninety percent of comedians act right now. Yes, yes, it, it's. It, it's eerie how easily he slips back into that role and and gives it like it 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 feels like he has more energy playing ash than he did when he was in the original evil dead movies yeah like he seems to really cherish the opportunity to be this ridiculous moron <laughs> uh but anyway so but yeah Boba, uh, Boba Nosferatu yeah. was the rumored sequel and yes and Paul Giamatti as much as I love Bruce Campbell I would love to see Giamatti work with Coscarelli more because he seems like Giamatti is, is kind of known to be a bit of a horror fan yeah um, and he it seems like he really enjoys himself in this movie even though he has kind of a thankless role as as being just the guy getting exposition out of David Wong's character. Yeah. And the funny thing is, reading the book, um, and I read the book after watching the movie, but it's funny how... I don't do it with many things. Like, you read a book after seeing the you know the, the movie adaptation. I don't often take the characters from the movie over. Like, within a couple of pages, it can be like, oh, this character doesn't seem anything like... You know the the character in in this novel, and there's there are very few books that that have done that with me. One of them being uh, I can never read American Psycho and not think of Christian Bale playing Patrick Bateman, as he's just in my head. And and this is another one actually. Whenever I read that role, I don't carry the 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 David character, John character over into the book. You know, as that this is how they look or how they act or anything, because uh, the characters are different in the in the novel, but. Um, Arnie Blondstone, um, he is Paul Giamatti to me when I, when I read the book, and I, a great yeah. casting choice. This movie also has a fucking Kurgan. The Kurgan is in this movie. Clancy Brown yes. is in this. I love Clancy Brown as well, and, and Clancy Brown. <laughs> yeah, I. Oh god. One of my problems with this movie is I feel like Clancy Brown just isn't in it enough. You know, yep. and obviously in the book, Marconi is a much more significant character that, mm -hmm. you know, fills a lot of pages. In the in the movie, Clancy Brown is in, what, maybe 10 minutes of this movie, if that. If that, yeah. And, you know, to me, that's, if you've got the Kurgan at your disposal, then you use him more. But it, it could have been a scheduling thing or just the way the script was written. Because, you know, as we discussed in the upfront, John dies at the end, the book 
is like the movie is the Cliff's, Cliff's Notes version of the book, but only portions of the book. Like yeah. there's, you know, like there's a scene in the in the movie where they go to uh, the the Mall of the Dead, um, that in the confines of the book is like a real mall that involves like what uh, all these creatures coming after them mm-hmm. and you know, like all this crazy shit is happening. Surprisingly, um, you know, the rest of the book seems so normal, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, there, there are just things about John dies at the end, the book that would be great to see on screen, but it would be a expensive as hell. Yeah. And, and B it like at a certain point, that book is almost anecdotal in the way that it moves. It's just kind of a series of stories that stretch over like two or three years of this guy's life. Yeah. Um, that you've just got to, you've got to make a real movie out of this thing. And so that's what Coscarelli did. And, you know, I think David Wong, the, both the, the character and the, uh, the writer, um, you know, I, there seems to be plenty of approval coming from his end about what Coscarelli did with it. In, in both cases, the authors seem to be fine with the direction that the yeah. directors took these movies. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, again, we're jumping on tangents right out of the tape. <laughs> but the, the thing that I think is most interesting about John Dies at the end is that it makes any kind of sense at all. Mm. Because the book almost feels like it is intentionally like not dense because it's not like there's a great deal of subtext and things like that. Or if there is, I I don't get it. It just seems like, uh, like a super energetic, fun, gory, vulgar, profane roller coaster of a book. (laughs) And I love it, but trying to adapt it into a film and, and in fairness, I saw the movie before I read the book and then, you know, had, obviously watched the movie again recently and it gave me a renewed appreciation for the fact that Coscarelli had what seems like an Herculean task. Oh yes. To carve out pieces of that book and then give it a through line. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's, it's almost one of those, because one of the big criticisms and um, like I say, we, we will go on to a, a proper through line for a review in a second, but one of the biggest criticisms of the movie that I've heard from people that read the book first is that it's not the book. And like I say, when you read that book, the, the, the first thing that comes to me while reading that book is that very much like you say, unless you've got $400 million to spend on a genre film, <laughs> you know what I mean? Which is, that in itself is unheard of. That movie's not going to be made the way the book. It's just the set pieces are too big, the effects ridiculous. You know, you would have to you would have to put so much money in to make that movie and I would argue that there is a niche audience out there for a movie like this. It's certainly bigger than a lot of quote-unquote horror movies because it does have that comedy element in it, but still, you would have to, you'd have to, you'd have to fight quite hard um, to to get a lot of people that generally wouldn't go at the movies to see a movie like this to go and even begin to pay money to make the money back that they'd spent into the movie. So yeah, yeah, like Del Toro couldn't get at the Mountains of Madness made mm. with Tom Cruise signed on. Yeah, so that says. <laughs> You know, so that tells you exactly because not only does John dies at the end need to be multi multi million dollars mm-hmm. and three hours long, it's also got to be R rated. 
Yeah, oh, gorgeous, gorgeous. Yeah, definitely. And that, once again, you're straight away, you're, you're putting up extra hurdles for this movie to make its money back. So Yeah, you might as well just go to a production company and say, like, I want to film my balls <laughs> for 90 minutes, and then I, we're going to sell that as a movie. And I, they would be more likely to approve that as some kind of weirdo art film. Then, yeah. Than a super expensive movie about a hallucinogen that creates time traveling and dimension traveling superheroes. Yeah, which is yeah. basically what the movie is kinda about. Um, I'll just finish off. The cast has also got Glenn uh, Thurman or Truman. Sorry, that's better. Uh, Doug Jones is in this. I do like a bit of Doug Jones, even though once again tiny tiny role. There's other folks in here that we could possibly talk about, but we're not gonna. Uh, the synopsis of listed on IMDb is a new drug that sends its users across uh, time and dimensions has one drawback. Some people return as no longer human. Can two college dropouts save humankind from the silent, otherworldly invasion? So, uh, this movie is, like we were talking earlier on about Paul Giamatti, basically, Paul Giamatti plays a reporter who has come to meet David Wong's character, um, and they, they sit down, and they start discussing what the the kind of mini celebrity and kind of mystery that surrounds John and David as these guys that are involved in the paranormal kind of world now as guys you go to if you've got a problem. And he's interviewing them. Uh, David's uh, trying to put over his story of of how this all started and. As you can imagine, uh, the the reporter is a bit sceptical because the the story right from the start is a bit outlandish, and then the movie is basically David telling the story of how he came to have the power he had, and basically its origins. Where where like we're saying the book carries on beyond that. This is just one part. This is just basically the origins of the story, um, and. We, what we do get is we we get a lot of uh, th- this movie starts with one a, a great thing, which I love, which is this idea of the story of the axe. Yes, yes, which is a f- it is incredible. It's a fucking great way to start your movie because if you're going to see a movie called John Dies at the End, which straight away you're like this sounds a bit weird, and you switch on and we are given this three minute clip of. Of this scenario, it's one of these kind of philosophical sort of uh, I don't know what are they called, koans? That's it, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, if a tree falls in the woods, does anyone hear it? Uh, This sort of idea of this, you know, uh, if you had an axe which you then used to chop someone's head off, right, and then you buried that body and used the same axe to then kill what looked like an alien slug which chipped your axe which you then had to replace um, after already replacing a part of said axe and then the creature then came back the guy came back with his head attached on and then said you know <laughs> I love the words is it like uh, that was the axe that slayed me and then he asked the question is it you know if you've already replaced the handle of it and replaced the top of it is it the same axe and then that's your intro and I, I love that idea of it. What I think the movie does really well is this idea of absurd comedy. And it really is. On some level, it is kind of juvenile and puerile uh, sort of humour. 
but kind of interspliced with the kind of sci-fi element, the horror element, and it helps that the two characters of John and David are actually really likable. You know what I mean? Like for for all John is a fairly reprehensible character that really is only looking out for himself. He's a very funny character that you kind of. You can kind of see these two characters as being friends, which I think it kind of works out really well considering they have nothing out with the fact that they went to college together in common. Um, and yeah, the, the whole story leads us down this this kind of, well, the whole story is told as a story to report, or leads us down this idea of this drug called soy sauce, which is this black alive substance, not too dissimilar from the, the the kind of black oil in the X-Files and what happens when you take said soy sauce and the events of a party that happened where, where kids then ended up dying and the police investigation into it and David trying to basically piece together what happened the night before whilst trying to also bring his friend John back from the dead and that's the crux of it and it does sound a bit all over the place but that's kind of cause it is but it's so surprising that even though the story does jump around quite a bit um, and it's quite absurd there that it actually has a really solid through line <laughs> in the story which I think really works um, What what's your thoughts Bo on the the I mean, it does have a kind of really, really out there sense of humor. Which, yeah, but yeah. I don't think it's that dissimilar from the sense of humor of something like Boba Hotep, yeah. which I respond to as well. I think that's a, a, an incredibly funny movie. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think John Dies at the End is very funny as well. But it is the kind of humor of, of being able to get a laugh out of, you know when the the guy you you beheaded with an axe returns and says that's the axe you murdered me with uh and the end of that is is he right yeah yeah you know <laughs> and like you have to be able to find that darkly funny which mm-hmm. I, I i certainly do i think that's a very funny bit and that's also direct from the book like that's how the book opens as well yes that's great uh, yeah. and yeah, so, you know, I agree with you that there is more of a through line in this than there is. Like, the book meanders far more than this does because it's, it's also got a, a bit of a grander scope. Even though this does involve the, the end of our world as we know it, uh, thanks to the Korak. Um, but I, my, my problem with the film, I, and I remember it being a little more freewheeling than it really is. Like, mm-hmm. when I watched it again, I was like, oh, yeah, this is a, a little bit tighter a story than I probably gave it credit for. Yeah. Uh, because it is sort of, okay, we have the introduction of the soy sauce and, and the effects of John and, and Dave individually after that happens. Then they come back together uh, for the scene at the mall, and we get the introduction of, hey, there's this doorway that leads to this other world. And then, you know, to me, the the weakest part of the movie is once you go through the door, largely because it feels kind of tacked on. It feels like at a certain point, you've got to wrap this up. Yeah. You can't just have a bunch of random shit going on for for 90 minutes and then just stop. You know, I mean, there (laughs) there are movies that do that, but those are generally considered art house films. And most of them are directed by Hal Hartley. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. 
which I love, by the way. I'm not not bagging on Hal Hartley. There's plenty of good Hal Hartley movies, but um, yeah, there's. So once you go through the door and you uh, and get into uh, this alternate dimension that is run by the Korak, who you learn is the result of a guy who died in our universe survives in theirs and goes on what is it called bestiology yeah bestiology uh, which is fucking hilarious oh. yeah <laughs> where he creates uh you know kind of these weird hybrid animals and and basically ends up creating this creature that absorbs consciousnesses as it eats people um, and it wants to uh, to get to our world to absorb everyone else, essentially. And the CGI is real bad. It's real bad. Yeah, when you get to that bit, it is obvious. You know, like it's really it's painfully obvious that everything's green screen in a way which it kind of reminded me of. And a lot of respects. And this is something that I use quite a lot. Uh, and describing this movie in particular, I was a huge fan, right? Huge fan um, in the early 2000s, very, very early 2000s, of a Canadian run show called Lex. Yes, yes, yes. I'm yeah. familiar. Yes, yeah, Lex was my bag. It was, it was completely my bag. It was everything I wanted. It was kind of cheesy sci-fi all insect based everything like was all it was like they flew on a giant bug called the Lex ship which was very much like Korok it was part machine part insect and all the rest and a lot of that was shot against green screen and it's obvious that it's shot against green screen because it was made for very little money and the 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 backgrounds they used which were digitally inserted afterwards weren't great um, and John Dice at the end reminds me at the end of this movie certainly reminds me of Lex but in a way which whilst it does make me cringe because I grew up watching Lex I get kind of nostalgic for it so it doesn't bother me but I know exactly what you mean it looks it looks fairly tacky compared to the rest of the movie yeah because there were such good effects that like one of my favourite moments um Jumping back to sort of middle, well, later in the movie, but it's when the uh, the Glenn Turman detective character, who maybe has my favorite moments in the whole, thing, <laughs> he's brilliant. <laughs> um, there's the great scene when he he runs across Dave at the trailer where Robert Marley, the guy who provided the soy sauce, <laughs> um, is, and and there's some implication that maybe it's the real Bob Marley. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, because of the way that soy sauce makes you jump back and forth in time and, and stuff. Um, and there's... Okay, anyway, there's so many things to talk about with this movie. Like, the the place I was going to go is an example of the way soy sauce affects a person's place in time, much like a Kurt Vonnegut novel, <laughs> is after John takes the soy sauce for the first time, he calls Dave because there's something in his apartment that only he can see that he wants... Dave to rescue him from mm -hmm. but he calls Dave about 20 times even though Dave only gets the first message mm -hmm. or one of the messages and then John tells him like oh you're probably going to be getting calls from me for the next two years and then later in in the film he gets another voicemail from John yeah that was dialed at that moment because but because John is slipping in and out of time it's happening 
later. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of weird time head fuck that goes on a lot of times in this movie. But anyway, so going back to the Glenn Turman scene. So Glenn Turman shows up, the detective, uh, and uh, um, Detective Albert, uh, uh, what's his name? Ba-ba-ba-ba. I think he's just called the detective. Yeah, I think he's just yeah. detective. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so he shows up and with a can of gasoline and starts kind of washing it around this trailer. And he gives this great speech about how he believes in, in heaven and hell and that there are doorways and that sometimes the doorways can be people. Mm-hmm. And all this stuff. And, uh, but later in the movie, the part that I was going to use as an example of incredible effects work at times in, the, in this movie is after he finds them at the mall and they're all escaping um, the uh, uh, Justin character, Justin yeah. White. And he says, like, yeah, 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 we need to get an answer. Maybe I can get this, all this screaming to stop. <laughs> and, the next scene is his eyes bulging out and popping. Yeah. And it is a great effect. It is. It really, it really holds up. It, like, it was one of those things that I thought, like, the first time I watched it, I thought, ah, oh, kind of bad CGI. And I don't know why I thought that, because when I watched it yesterday, I was like, that's such a cool effect. And it, it's almost, I wonder, you were talking about this idea of tagging things on at the end, as, a, you know, we have this really cool hour and 15 minutes of a movie look at it it flows really well it's shot really well and all the rest but we need to have an ending the studio tells us we need to have an ending or I I don't know if it went as far as being tested with a different ending but then this idea of well we'll just pick this kind of smaller part of the book and we'll tag that on as a kind of natural end to the movie which it does feel very much out of place with the rest of the movie and it kind of makes me wonder how much of a budget was left to do that um, yeah yeah I, it feels like they kind of ran out of money at this point or something and and yeah it's it's disappointing because the rest of the movie is so you know it is kind of freewheeling and that's not a criticism of it because some movies can be a little more lackadaisical in their approach to narrative and that that benefits them mm-hmm. um and and this is one of those movies because it's just like everywhere you turn in the first, at least the first hour of this movie, there's just something weird and interesting and unexpected going on. Yeah. And and then when you get to, you know, Marconi and, and his girls being in the other dimension and, you know, it turns out that the dog is really the one who has been the, the secret agent all along. All along and that's yeah. kind of a... You know, and and that's a perfectly fun resolution, but uh, you know it it it's just disappointing because it feels like such an afterthought when the rest of the movie it feels random, yes, but not it it never feels rushed or or uncared for. Yeah, you know, and that's kind of how the end feels to me is that it, it was just like. We gotta wrap this up. We're running out of money. Let's we'll we'll have these people say these things and like even the thing with the um, the cartoon spiders, yeah, which is really funny, but that also feels like a thing that they did as a cost saving measure. And that's what I was. <laughs> that's what I thought when I saw. It. I was like, this is because someone didn't want to spend a lot of money. 
and I, I, can, I can see why. Like that's totally seems, understandable. Yeah, yeah, that's probably your biggest expense in this movie. Would be shooting that scene practically, or even digitally to, to an extent by using a lot of graphic effects to try and make it look good. Um, I like. We're talking about like some of the practical. Let's not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna jerk this movie off and say that you know it's it's just the end that suffers some issues of of practical sort of elements you know or, or you know cgi elements the beginning of this movie when we are the very first story that's told after the axe story is about john and david going to help a woman and the they end up going to her house she says that she's been abused and they go to the house and when they go downstairs they realize that one of the and this will play in towards the end one of the issues with these creatures from different dimensions or spiritual creatures is that they appear differently to every person that sees them it's just part of what they do so when john describes what she looks like to david david realizes that's not who we the audience are seeing or you know who he is seeing himself and um we then are confronted with this this creature which is made out of meat always different meat and that is a pretty bad looking creature i'm not gonna lie it's it's pretty dodgy but there's a fucking amazing scene a couple of seconds before it and i know this is one that has been mentioned on our facebook page quite a bit for people that want to hear me talk about this when when John runs upstairs to turn the doorknob and it actually turns into a man's knob, <laughs> he, he touches and goes, oh, and he's like, that door cannot be opened. I think that's yeah. one of the funniest fucking yeah. things. Like, g- genuinely one of the funniest things I saw that year. Because I think it's just hilarious, and yeah, it's really juvenile and all the rest, but... I, I, just, <laughs> I just think it's a little, I think that sets the tone for the movie. If you know what I mean, when that when that scene happens later on in the movie, when some when a character's talking into a bratwurst as a telephone, I, I just go with that because I've seen a cock door knob appear. Um, so you just kind of roll with it after that. But well, so the fact in that scene, uh, the other thing I really love about that moment, aside from the cock door knob, which is hilarious, <laughs> is when he uh, the the meat monster is there for Marconi, it turns out. Oh, yeah. And they're like, hang on a second, you got the wrong people, let's call him. And he, so they pull out their cell phone, or John pulls out a cell phone, dials up Marconi, and kind of lets his, you know, one of the beautiful twin assistants know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And then he just hands the phone to the meat monster, who repeats the thread again. <laughs> and... I think it's just a wonderful scene. But yeah. yeah. He's like, ah, Marconi, finally we talk again. I love the fact <laughs> that you that you don't hear what he says to him at all. You're like, that's that's what makes that character cool as fuck. You don't hear his words or anything. It, it just like the creature explodes and then they're like, Oh damn, he's good and he just flips the phone over, hands it to his assistant, turns around and walks into his adoring crowd. I just think that's I think it's so, so fun. Um there there, there are tons of things in this movie that I think work really, really well for it. Um I love the practical effect of um David ripping the arm off the, the cop who he imagines and then this arm becoming some sort of garrote device around his neck I think that is great, I think it's very very funny, I think um, that scene that we're talking about in the in the kind of trailer park 
I love I love the idea of because the book deals with quite a lot of space and time and you know being able to travel backwards or forwards. The the sequence where where David gets shot by by uh, the the detective, but he doesn't die because he has inadvertently put himself in a position in the past where he has distracted someone, which allowed a fly to fly into the bullet, which made the bullet not act in the way a bullet should act because there was no. I would imagine it's because there was no gunpowder or something. I don't know. Um, but it, it basically compromises it. And that is the exact bullet used by the detective to shoot him, thus not killing him. I think those sort of things, whilst very convoluted, I, I think work really well in the movie. Um, I think that's probably where the movie's at its strength, where it's taking these quirky ideas, given a lot of dialogue exposition, and then giving you, which is basically the punchline to the joke, um, I think that all works really well. I think the movie, it's funny you mentioned um, Bubba Hotep, which was Coscarelli's previous movie to this, and I get the feeling that probably Coscarelli, I would imagine that if this movie had been getting batted around in some sort of form beforehand by David Wong, I could understand why he picked Coscarelli to do it. Um, because of the fun, the sense of humour that rides right through Bubble Hotep, which I think is an incredible horror comedy. Um, I think that on some level that works as an idea why you would pick that director to do it. Um, but Coscarelli, just like kind of briefly touching on him, for those that maybe don't necessarily know the man, you probably do know the man, that you might just not have heard his name uh, mentioned in that way before. Uh, it's probably most notably known for, for Phantasm, which was... That was the movie he kind of really hit the big time with as a, as a horror director. And at a really young age, of those masters of horror, I think he's the youngest um, by quite a few years. I think, I'm sure I read somewhere that he made Phantasm when he was either very late teens or very early 20s, which just blows my mind. Because sure. that yeah, movie's, yeah. that movie, like Phantasm, is a, I think it's an incredible movie of its time. I mean, it, it predates a lot of the, the huge influx or horror movies which would dominate the early 80s, you know, by being... It still has this idea of this kind of... It's the supernatural movie, yeah. you know what I mean? But kind of it falls into a lot of the tropes that a lot of 80, 80s movies would do, you know, maybe three, four years after that movie came out. Yeah, and it has elements of sci-fi as well, mm. particularly when you get into the sequels to, to Phantasm and you're dealing with other dimensions and things like that. And if memory serves, I may be totally wrong about this, but I, I think in, in one of the prefaces to a later edition of John Dies at the End that David Wong actually says, like, Phantasm, while not a direct influence on John Dies at the End, was certainly one of those movies that informed the kind of stuff that he liked to see. Yeah. And, and, and in the writing of John Dies. Like, John Dies at the End, the book really does feel like a greatest hits of a bunch of movies from the 80s. Yes, definitely. And and Coscarelli, I think, is a great choice for it. You know, it, yes, you're right, because of Bubba Hotep, which had come immediately before, but also because of something like Phantasm, which is also kind of freewheeling and weird. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah so, you know, the, I... I I tend to think Coscarelli is at the very least an interesting director. Mm -hmm. um, even if I have my problems with that last Phantasm movie in a real big way, but yeah. <laughs> um, 
but I, I, I don't mind seeing a guy like Coscarelli, Coscarelli failing because if he fails, it's going to be an interesting failure and not just, hey, I didn't put this movie together right. Like, I have problems with John Dies at the end. Mm-hmm. The problems aren't really direction. I think the problems are that at a certain point, you got to end this movie one way or the other and, and money. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, there have been conversations we've had about, like, if you don't have the money to do something, just don't do it. Um, I don't know that I necessarily agree with that in this case. Yeah. I think that this movie is weird enough and the ideas in it are, if not original enough, they're assembled in an original way, if that makes sense. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like there is, there is stuff in here that is familiar, whether it's like, um, you know, the bugs, which is another problem I have with the movie, the, you know, the kind of man-eating bugs that, you know, uh, somehow infect you and you become part of, like, Korak or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And and you only see that really happen a couple of times, and then when you get on the other side, nobody ever mentions the bugs. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's kind of a mistake of, like, well, maybe you should at least kind of make a nod to yeah. that somehow. But, um but that kind of stuff, like you have seen that in other in other forms in other movies, but there are very few times you see a movie where you think, I've never seen a movie like this before. Yeah. And John Dies at the End is filled, chock full of ideas that I've never seen presented in this way. Mm-hmm. And, and the result of the movie is a film that when I'm watching it, it, it is like, it is like just such a perfect confection of shit I like. Yeah. <laughs> I love like even even the like there's there are like the end credit sequence <laughs> in this movie is yeah. just fucking brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant because in any other movie, once our heroes have saved the day, you know, the the next opportunity for them to save the day they will grab on that with both that right here we go we're going on another quest I love the fact that they end up in this other dimension which looks like it's even worse than the Korok one they're asked for their help and they both look at each other and John's like well we need to go back to our world and get you know we need to get supplies and then come back and they're like oh yes we will wait for you and they're walking off and as they're walking off in slow motion John's just doing the, the flappy hand thing like that guy's talk 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 and you know for a fact they're never going back or if not, we've already established that there's so much time, uh, or that time passes so much faster there. Yeah. That by the time, they, let's assume they go get some stuff, they're probably going to stop for lunch, mm-hmm. then get their gear. By the time <laughs> they get back, the people they talk to are long dead. And it, and uh, again, that's assuming they go back at all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and that is not a guarantee. Like, these, these characters aren't, they're heroic, but only as it suits them. Yeah, you know, like when they when they go through the to the other dimension to fight Korak and stuff, it's you know it's kind of done with a shrug of just like okay, I guess we're gonna go do this. <laughs> you know, it's not they they acknowledge the fact that it's saving the world, mm-hmm. but you know that's kind of the genius of their characters is yes, they're saving the world, but they don't seem to be that excited about it. Yeah, you know, um, and and you're right. I think uh, both. Chase Williamson and Rob Mays uh, as Dave and John, respectively, um, are, are very likable. And they kind of give that, 
sort of 90s era who gives a fuck attitude yeah. uh, off in in a way that's not that that isn't irritating or infuriating from the characters mm-hmm. um you know but they like the sign of a good movie i think is that there are a hundred places in this movie where i wish it went further not because i don't think it goes far enough i just want to see more of that like i i could watch a whole movie that's nothing but dave and arnie talking at the table oh yeah definitely you know, and you get a handful of those scenes, but not nearly enough for my money. Mm-hmm. Um, I could watch a hundred scenes of, you know, uh, the detective who, I, by the way, I remember is named Morgan Freeman, by the way. <laughs> he's uh, not Morgan Freeman. He's Detective Appleton. But in the, in, <laughs> I'm, I'm going back to the book. Where and they, the book he's called, Mor- like, they refer to him as Morgan Freeman, which I think is fucking genius. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, the, but I I could watch a hundred scenes of just him talking about the absurdity of what he's dealing with. Oh, yeah. But all, you know, like his whole speech about you know I don't watch Star Trek. I don't you know that all that stuff. I think is fantastic. It's just there are so many places this movie does it just right that the places it gets it wrong, I think are even more exaggerated. Yeah. You know, like you feel that because sometimes it nails a very tough tone of being kind of weird and subversive and funny and creepy and gets all that just right that when the tone isn't right, it's even more dissonant. That's that's as smart as I'm going to sound on any episode (laughs) of anything I ever do. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Right, so um, I don't know if there's anything else you want to say about this one. We have a, a... a monumental task ahead of us in discussing our next movie. Um, what I what I would say is that um, yeah, I'm pretty much. I think I think this is. I was going to say one of those rare occasions, but we tend to be quite. We tend to be quite a lot on the same page. Actually, I'm the same as you. I think that this movie really does deliver things which, on paper, I would think would be incredibly difficult to do, and the type of movie it puts forward. Yet at the same time makes it highly entertaining it really does give me those likeable characters and um, some good casting I, I, I like I can't stress that enough Paul Giamatti we were saying is, is a character that generally in movies is given quite a lot of dialogue and he isn't really in this movie but I, I like the idea of him being that reporter I love I love the resolution to that that character as well albeit it's completely tragic when you hear him talk about his wives and the fact that he, his wife and his kids and the fact that he's he's got tickets, I've got tickets. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm going to Atlantic City. I've got I'm going on vacation. All, all these sort of things. I think he's great in it. Um, and he has to hear Giamatti swear a lot. Uh, yeah, he's you know that's that's like ticks from me. Um, and yeah, there's there's so much about this movie. Even down to the very end, after the credits, where it says any unauthorized duplication or distribution may result in civil uh, civil liability criminal prosecution and the wrath of Korok um, which once again the humour is all the way through this movie from right from that, that opening scene right to the very end and I like movies like that um, Bo as you may remember on this show sir we do Netflix gradings uh, on, yes. on, on that on that scale. Um, one is hated it, two is didn't like it, three is liked it, four is really liked it, five is loved it. Where do you come in at with John dies at the end? It's it's hard because As, the movie has problems. Yes, 
but I love it. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like, uh, have you ever dated someone with a lazy eye? <laughs> I have not. <laughs> uh, so, you know you love them, but there's, every time, it's hard to look them right in the face. <laughs> Because you can't help but just think, like, everything about you is perfect except for this lazy eye. Um, oh, that's funny. But fuck. the lazy eye is really right there front and center. And <laughs> you can't just look past it. No pun intended. Um, I, I, th- This movie is four stars. Mm-hmm. Or not stars, but it's a four out of five for me. Um, yeah, yeah, it is It is something I dearly love. But, man, it's it that lazy eye is, is tough. To look past. I'm the same. I come in with four stars. I really like this movie. Um, it would be a five star. I actually think it would be a five star if they took the, the ending off entirely. Um, and even with that, just just tagged on something really simple. I, 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 you know, almost on some level, you know, he just says, you know, they give you the scene where he talks about everything that happened after Korok. You could take out the Korok thing, somehow tag that bit on, and give us that end credit sequence. Um, that to me is better than the last 10 minutes of the movie which I do think it really does the, the scenes show uh, and that does knock it down from the, the 5 to the 4 what I would say is though that both myself and Bo have read the book and I would say it's actually it's a great book I really really enjoy it It's if you enjoy this movie the book is so much more interesting it gives you what Bo was saying that idea of you see certain scenes, you're like, I could watch, uh, you know, a hundred more minutes of this. The book gives you that, um, and then the follow-up book as well. This book is full of spiders. Um, it's a great book as well, so I highly recommend. I have not both. read that. Oh, you should read that book. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Um, right, Bo. Now that we've had all the fun, um, it's time to take a short break. Um, and come back to discuss the second movie selected uh, to discuss, which is uh, <laughs> one of Cronenberg's more challenging films in his adaptation of the William Burroughs book Naked Lunch from 1991. So you're going to hear more promos and the trailer for that movie. Myself and Bo coming back to discuss Naked Lunch right after this. You're listening to the podcast under the stairs. Did I ever tell you about the man who taught his asshole to talk? His whole abdomen would move up and down your dick, farting out the words. It was unlike anything I ever heard. Bubbly, thick, stagnant sound. Sound you could smell. This man worked for the carnival, you dig, and it started with it was like a novelty ventriloquist act. After a while, the ass started talking on its own. He would go in without anything prepared, and his ass would ad-lib and toss the gags back at him every time. Then it developed sort of teeth-like little raspy, in-curving hooks and started eating. He thought this was cute at first and built an act around it, but the asshole would eat its way through his pants and start talking on the street, shouting out it wanted equal rights. It would get drunk, too, and have crying jags. Nobody loved it. and didn't want to be kissed, same as any other mouth. Finally, it talked all the time, day and night. You could hear him for blocks, screaming at it to shut up, beating at it with his fists and sticking candles up it, but... 
Nothing did any good, and the asshole said to him, it is you who will shut up in the end, not me, because we don't need you around here anymore. I can talk and eat and shit. And after that, he began waking up in the morning with transparent jelly like a tadpole's tail all over his mouth. He would tear it off his mouth, and the pieces would stick to his hands like burning gasoline jelly and grow there. So finally his mouth sealed over, and the whole head would have amputated spontaneously, except for the eyes, you dig? That's the one thing the asshole couldn't do, was see. It needed the eyes. Nerve connections were blocked and infiltrated and atrophied, so the brain couldn't give orders anymore. It was trapped inside the skull, sealed off. For a while, you could see the silent, helpless suffering of the brain behind the eyes. And then finally, the brain must have died because the eyes went out. And there was no more feeling in them than a crab's eye at the end of a stalk. Movies need only three things. Badasses. You tell me who you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. A chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know that the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve, can be deadly weapons? And body counts. Mathematics of murder and menace. The BBNBC podcast discusses lesser-known action, exploitation, and horror cult cinema. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, and SoundCloud by searching for BBNBC podcast. You can also listen to each episode directly on the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Got the goddamn message? Let's go to work. When I started writing Naked Lunch, people offered their opinions. Disgusting, they said. Pornographic, un-American trash, unpublishable. Well, it came out in 1959, and it found an audience. Town meetings, book burnings, and an inquiry by the state Supreme Court. That book made quite a little impression. Now, 30 years later, Hollywood, in its infinite wisdom, has turned it into a movie. 30 feet tall, in living color. Cover your eyes, America. Run for your lives. You're a marked man, Bill. You're just gonna have to leave town. Tourist class, I'm afraid. you were finished with doing weird stuff i thought i was too but i guess i'm not and welcome back so this is the second and final movie review of this listener's choice first episode december 
2015, we are discussing Naked Lunch from 1991, which is based on the William S. Burroughs book, Naked Lunch. Um, is directed by arguably one of my favourite, and I don't know I'm saying arguably one of my favourite, as if I would argue with myself. That's the first way ticket to the nut house. Uh, but I'm going to say Terminate it again. Terminate all rational thought, Duncan. Exterm- yeah, I'm going to get that tattooed on me. Um... And I'm going to get tattooed on everyone else, <laughs> whether they want to or not. It's directed by David Cronenberg. Uh, this movie stars Peter Weller, Judy Davis, Ian Holmes, Julian Sands, Roy Schreiner. <laughs> I can't even say it now. Oh, Roy Schreiner. Uh, Monique McCure. There's a joke uh, which I, I feel like I need to... On the original recording, I said Rob Schneider and Bo about spat whatever he was drinking over his computer and phoned David Cronenberg to say have me assassinated um, because that's not right uh, Nicholas Campbell other folks are in the movie the synopsis for this one is listed on IMDb as after developing an addiction to a substance he uses to kill bugs an exterminator accidentally murders his wife and becomes involved in a secret government plot behind orchestrated by giant bugs in a port town in North Africa. Ad, that wraps it up. I think we're done. Yeah, if only it was that simple, Bo. If only it was that simple. I um, saw this movie quite a while ago, actually. Um, and it was before... It was before my real love of Cronenberg, to, to, to be honest. Um, like I got... Like Cronenberg kind of emerged on my radar. I had seen, like, Videodrome which I did love and I had seen Scanners but I wasn't out with that I wasn't really aware of kind of more of his important movies when you're looking at something like um, Rabid or Shivers or Dead Ringers or you know like those sort of movies until after watching Existence um, which was kind of at the time I worked in a video store that was a release that had quite a lot of hype behind it because it was a new Cronenberg and and all the rest and the the like I say out with Videodrome, um, and Scanners. The only other movie that I was aware of that he'd done was Crash, which at the time I hadn't seen. Um, so yeah, Na- Naked Lunch to me was one of those ones that you know as soon as seeing Existence, I had saw Naked Lunch shortly after that, and then went on this kind of Cronenberg binge, um, which something about Cronenberg movies that kind of fascinate you but at the same time make you want to shower after watching them Um, and Naked Lunch is no exception Um, we've said at the beginning of this recording that neither one of us has read the source material but it has been long rumoured that you know, before this was made into a movie, this was the book which could not be made into a movie um, because you just couldn't do it. And Bo described earlier on about his understanding of the the novel. How did you describe it? it was like individual vignettes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's very kind of episodic without the, uh, any kind of real through line, which this has ish. Yeah, and I mean, the, the the big thing about this one, like I said at the beginning, was check when I was checking out the Criterion, they have the documentary of the making into this movie, and Cronenberg describes it as being an idea that he had already on the cards um, circa 85, I think, but both himself and um, the gentleman that he also worked with, who I think was a producer on this, who... 
scored success with this movie and I want to say Empire in the Sun but I don't know if that was the case and then Cronenberg uh, had huge success with The Fly um, that you know when Naked Lunch finally did rear its head again believe it or not it actually happened after he wrote the screenplay he was saying after filming his scenes as Dr. Decker um, and Nightbreed which I think is quite interesting so he did it on the play and he started writing down his adaptation and it really is picking elements of the book um, and like I said at the, the start of the show he kind of crosses them with elements of um, things from I think Burroughs biography he, he incorporates that and then Burroughs actually worked as well with him to mould and adapt things and he was on set with them during the filming as well so the actors and actresses could bounce ideas off him so it's a, a hugely collaborative project which n- might not fully resemble the book but I- I'll go out there and say I really like this movie I think this is it gives me it's no should be no surprise because it's not a a simple movie by any stretch of the imagination but it, this is I would argue is one of Cronenberg's most ambitious movies ever I think it, there's just so much going on and so much to so much hard work to try and keep someone interested in what's going on when really very little does actually make sense and a lot of it is open to interpretation and very subjective there is tons tons of um, of things going around in this movie where you could angle it at different directions or different theories which I think is a hallmark of, a, of any great movie or any great director is to give you a movie which allows you to put yourself into the movie to get a message back out which uh, involves you as a viewer so I think it does that um, before we go and talk about some scenes which if you've not seen this movie I would recommend you try and watch this movie because out of context that is just going to sound like me and Bo are weird <laughs> weirder than we already come across on these shows is there anything Bo you want to say as a kind of opening statement before we talk about Naked Lunch yes All right. <laughs> I'm glad that I asked um, I would highly highly recommend uh, prior to if you haven't seen Naked Lunch I would recommend watching it prior to, to hearing us talk about it mm-hmm. uh, because I don't think I'm going to spoil anything by saying we would both recommend that you watch this movie definitely yeah. um, and also I would recommend before watching this movie that you listen to a um, it was originally done for the BBC it's about an hour hour and a half uh that is an audio biography of William Burroughs narrated by Iggy Pop. Oh God. <laughs> Simpson Meese. Yeah. Who was, you know, who was and is a fan of, of William Burroughs. Um, and it is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And there are times even within the documentary where Iggy Pop will disagree with the narration he has been given to read. Ah, and it is as not quite a stream of consciousness as say Burroughs writing, mm-hmm. but it does a great job of explaining the appeal of William Burroughs as well as to discuss significant moments in his life, including the death of his wife and his, uh, you know, his kind of coming out as, as a homosexual and things like that. Things that figure very heavily into this film. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it's almost worth your, your money to do a little bit of homework before seeing this movie because I think you're going to get more out of it mm-hmm. 
But that being said, if you don't and just want to watch like a great David Cronenberg movie, it's that too. Yeah. But but it does feel like a little bit of of effort would make this movie an even better experience to watch. Like when I watched this again recently, it is post having listened to that radio show about Burroughs and and knowing a little bit more about the the man as an author and just as an individual and watching it again it it felt so much richer an experience knowing that stuff oh i may have to do that then (laughs) you absolutely should yes you absolutely should and you know i would even say if you put it in the show notes that's not the worst thing that could happen because it's totally it's worth listening to just because it's a great documentary yeah but it also just oh my god it makes watching this movie such a different experience Oh, wow. All right, so we've got that right out, that, that bombshell right at the start, out the way. Um, yeah, I, that's going to happen. I definitely know that's going to happen with me, probably tonight. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I revisited this uh, for recording today. Uh, so I, I watched this one earlier on today. And I was struck by, before we go and talk about the, the bits and bobs of the, the actual movie itself, the thing that struck me is how this is not one that naturally jumps to the tip of my tongue when talking about Cronenberg. Like, generally, when someone will ask me, and I say generally, as if people just stop and ask me, you know, hi, Duncan, what's your favourite director? Um, which they don't. But g- generally, when I'm talking about movies, ultimately, the conversation will... It leads to actors and obviously leads to directors at some point. And, I mean, Cronenberg is up there for me. I think he's he's in my top five directors of all time. I think he's a, a hugely intelligent filmmaker. And at the same time, I think he carved out a subgenre which I think no one has been able to really come close to him on. Um, I think when it comes to body horror, I don't think there's many people that have really come close to doing it like Cronenberg does it. Um, and it's, it's, it's weirdly uncomfortable... Yeah, artistic, yeah, icky, and you know, it's just all, all these things rolled into one. And I think he is naturally the perfect choice to tackle some of the subject matter which, which appears in Naked Lunch. I think um, he is perfectly poised. It does not surprise me. Very similar, we're talking about Coscarelli basically finding his way to John Dies at the end. It does not surprise me that Cronenberg found his way to Naked Lunch. So, with that being said, the movie involves and boy you will have to help me here because there are bits where i believe i think i know what's going on but at times i don't really know what's going on um so it follows our main character william lee as played by peter weller he of robocop fame um and he is an exterminator he exterminates bugs um and his wife is uh, addicted to said powder which is used to exterminate the drugs. Um, mm-hmm. Now, we are led to believe that somewhere down the line, Lee has been involved with heavy drug use or drug take as a character. Um, he is arrested by the police, and at this point, he's introduced to a giant cockroach. Um, now, I think this is after he takes the drug, although we, I, I'm assuming that is off screen. Because I never, yeah. you never actually see him take it, but she tells him to take it, and then you see him heat the spoon, but you never see him inject at that stage. 
Yeah, but he does he does say after leaving the police station that he was starting to hallucinate. Yeah. And and it seems to be, yes, a direct result of him injecting the yellow bug powder. Yeah. It takes his yellow bug powder, but the, the bug that he sees, the giant bug that he sees in the police station, speaks to him and basically tells him in some way that he is an agent. Uh, he's working for some organisation and he needs to hand in his report. Um, and of course he freaks out to this, kills the bug, goes back home, finds his wife. Uh, oh, wait, wait, wait. Before we skip over that, yep. the the uh, typewriter also, the or not the typewriter, the, the bug tells him that he has to kill his wife. Yes. And it has to be this week and it has to be tasty. Yes. Um, the, the, because she is not human or such yes. or she's not the same as him or whatever so he goes home his wife is having an affair with one of his friends the other friend is creepily watching and then suggests that maybe they should get involved um lee kind of refuses uh goes through shoots up oh, was that right no he first at first he visits the doctor dr benway um, and Dr. Benway gives him this black powder, which is also made from bugs, and it, he says that if you mix this in, it will destroy the effects of taking the drug, um, and as such will help his wife come off it, And which is what he does. He shoots himself up with this and shoots his wife up, and then actually shoots his wife, which is done in a manner of, I'm assuming the the... Veggie Pop thing covers this that in real life William S. Burroughs actually did kill his wife with a gun shooting her in the head after performing this particular trick yes it was it, it, this was exactly biographical in mm -hmm. the, it, you know I think even in the description of this movie they, they say it's sort of a weird blend of some of the vignettes from Naked Lunch the, the novel and stuff from Burroughs' own life Yeah, and this is one of the things from Burroughs' own, own life is that yes and, and from my understanding, the line of "we're gonna show, uh, we're gonna show him our William Tell routine" yeah. is an exact quote. Yes, from his wife. The, yeah. Yeah, she said at the time. Apparently, um, he was very much shit faced on, on on alcohol and God knows what else. And his wife must have been the same. And she said, "We'll show him our, our William Tell." And she put the glass on the top of her head, and. Um, Burroughs said that he'd never done this before and they didn't have, this wasn't something they, you know, did, you know, <laughs> like with company or anything, but he was apparently quite a good shot, um, which is probably why she asked him to do it, God knows what she was on, and he went to shoot the glass off the top of her head, missed and killed her, shot her through the head, so they, they eerily put this into the movie, more than once actually, which is, knowing that now, I find that quite incredible, you know, like from his point of view, and I know he had a, a one of these these lives that you you know couldn't be captured in one book, yeah, um, William Burroughs. But I would imagine that'd be quite uncomfortable seeing back as someone basically not just make reference but do exactly what happened in the movie, telling his story. That to me is yeah, in close the, to the in bone. The, <laughs> in the in the documentary, and not to not to spoil it for anyone, um, but. And, you know, also Burroughs was uh, heavily in contact with Cronenberg during the, the writing and filming of yeah. this movie. So it, it wasn't like Cronenberg was, was twisting the knife or anything. But it was clear that the death of his, or the murder of his wife, it was accidental because they were both out of their gourds on drugs. But um, 
it was clear that that haunted Burroughs his entire life. Yeah. And and I think the repetition of that moment in this movie is a reflection of that. That it, this is the event that he can never escape. No matter what he does, what he becomes, what he writes, this is the event that will haunt him all his days. Mm-hmm. And I think um, I think watching it, obviously he he does this. He kills his wife, and then he he decides to go on the run after selling his gun and buying a typewriter. Um, and we find out that this black this black substance that he's been taken is infinitely worse <laughs> than the 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 kind of yellow powder that his his wife was taking and um, the extermination powder this black powder is so much more trippy and worse than all the rest and his typewriter starts to come alive it, it actually resembles the bug that he killed earlier on and there's always this idea of please report back to us please let us know you know the juicy ins and outs, the details, almost as if his his inner thoughts on that typewriter are intrinsically linked to that typewriter and can't be shared with anyone else. Um, <clears throat> we we then end up in this inner zone place, um, which appears to the, the thing that the movie doesn't necessarily do. I was going to say doesn't do well in describing, but. It's very difficult to to make the leap. Is that the the inner zone place appears to be in Africa, whilst the the movie opens in New York, with no clear link as to how he gets from one place to another. And that is just a, I was going to say a bugbearer, but it obviously is the the kind of metaphysical equivalent of the the effects of the drugs that he's taken, um, which is uh, yeah yeah as, as well as I think. His escape from reality yes. after murdering his wife. Yes, like, you know, I, I, you know, both biographically and in the course of the film, I think it. I think much of this movie is about his escape from this horrible thing he's done, mm-hmm. and you know, his his use of the Brazilian aquatic centipede powder. Which, <laughs> by the way, is genius, uh, yeah. <laughs> but. Like it's it's just him escaping reality mm. so that he doesn't have to face the person he is. Yeah. yeah. Um anyway, all right, yeah, so sorry to sorry to stop you. I just there are moments where it's like, I think this is about Yeah, know, there's like, gonna be a lot of that here. And see when we get to talk about some of what I actually think is going on in this movie, it'll be interesting to see if we kinda tie up on this or if we, we come in completely different angles. So I, I, also, One other thing I think is important to point out that the the his typewriter his his controller mm-hmm. um, as, as it's put because there in theory his typewriter is giving him instructions yes for him to go carry out his agent duties but it also speaks from what is clearly an anus yeah well yeah well that that was something I was going to come back and talk about later on. yeah there's yeah there's a lot of right because there there's a lot of uh, kind of overtly and inadvertently kind of homosexual nature to this movie, a lot of the, the fact that the, I don't think that the fact that the anus is telling him in a man's voice to kill his wife and you know, that she's not normal or not human is, you know, just coincidence 
if you know what I mean, when we go on to later on in the movie. Um, so yeah, so basically, he flees to Interzone, he's now writing reports for the typewriter that's talking to him, and he comes in contact with various different characters. There's one character who is trying to make contact with Dr. Benway. He is uh, of German descent, and he owns a factory where they are mass-producing this uh, black powder from these giant centipedes. Um, there is the character of Ian Holm in this movie who plays Frost, who's brilliant, and he is another author who is seeing a woman who is basically his equivalent, his wife equivalent of 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 Joan. She's also the same name, so we have Joan Lee, who was William Lee's wife who he shoots. And then we have Joan Frost, who's played by the same actress, so it's the same character, the hair's just different, and he is receiving his messages for her. Um, and yeah, the, the he gets given, at one point, he gets given Ian Holmes' typewriter, which is a different typewriter, and his typewriter attacks that typewriter because it's, an, you know, it's, it's from a different agent, and, you know, they're trying to get your information. And, and all the while he is, he, he's taken... He's taking these drugs. And basically what, what happens is we find out that there is there's like a, a sub-thing happening here with this distribution of the black powder and the, the police get involved. And this then leads to his interactions with various different characters who even the typewriter at one point tells him uh, to write something along the lines of being a homosexual is the greatest cover for an a, a greatest cover for an undercover agent. Th- yeah, yeah. So it's, it's telling him that through its anus port on the top of its his body, and we we meet like I say all these different characters. Eventually, we find out that uh, Doctor Benway uh, as a character is actually someone else. He's he's using this disguise of a woman who is now mass-producing this completely different narcotic because the black powder has been, has been prohibited um, and they move on to this mugwort jizz or whatever it's called which is basically what looks like semen which is protruding from a cock-like antenna from the top of an alien um, or, or giant bug man um, and he is he is kind of brought... Benway kind of decides to, to try and bring him in to his inner circle tells him he'll give him anything he wants and he decides that what he wants is he wants Joan Frost who's been kidnapped because he kind of wants to make amends and have his wife back or the the approximation of his wife someone that looks very similar same first name etc and uh, they they flee the interzone to go to Annexia Uh, when they arrive at the border there uh, the police stop him ask him what he does for a living he claims that he's a writer Um, they ask him to prove that he's a writer so he brings out a pen because he's no longer got the the typewriter they say that's insufficient proof for them and he then basically recreates the death of his wife again uh, by telling her let's do a William tell she puts the the glass on the top of her head he shoots again killing his wife exactly the same as he did at the beginning and the guards allow him to to enter uh, Anexia so that is loosely what happens in the film. I've missed a huge scene out involving Julian Sands because I've heard some people in the past say that this movie is not necessarily a horror movie and whilst I agree with them to an extent, the scene with Julian Sands as a bug 
like consuming and and uh, sodomizing a young man, I think is one of the most iconic horror scenes in any movie made in the nineties. I think it is absolutely wonderfully terrifying. So you know the scenes like that, I think, kind of bring it more into this world of, of genre uh, movies than it does anywhere else. Um, right, Bo, let's 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 dig in to this movie. Um, hopefully you've now coming down from the results of the acid you took earlier. Oh baby, I'm just starting to fly. <laughs> right. Um, talk to me about Naked Lunch. Um. Yeah. I. All right. So, I think that part of the genius of this movie is that it is part biography of William Burroughs, mm-hmm. which is seen in many of the scenes involving kind of denial of homosexuality and the death of his wife and the drug use and and that sort of thing. I think it is partly about the act of creation, whether that's writing or directing. And, and, and you know, part of that is is stolen from Cronenberg's own words, where he talks about the, the interzone as being sort of an analogy for the place that a writer goes. And, and, and lets his imagination or her imagination, uh, run wild and then comes back. You know, there's the scene where, uh, Bill Lee's friends, writer friends come back to like, they find him in inner zone and it's where they first find the pages of naked lunch. And they say like, Hey, you need to come back with us. And he's like, well, you know, no, you should stay here with me and blah, blah, blah. And they finally say, like, look, finish your book. But once it's done, you need to come back. And I think that is very pointedly a way that Cronenberg is saying, you have to go a little mad to create these works of art. Yeah. But once you do so, you have to find your way back home. And Burroughs maybe wasn't the best at that. You know, whether that was because of drugs. And I, I think, you know, one of his friends even says, we need to discuss your philosophy of drug use and creation, uh, something like that. And so I, all right. So I think you kind of have the movie about Burroughs as a, a man. You have the movie that is about what creation is, artistic creation is, and and the dangers of that. And then you have this other movie that is sort of the umbrella uh, under which all the the rest of it operates, where it's a story about a guy who goes to this inner zone thing and, and there's all the weird stuff happening with the typewriters and he takes someone else's typewriter and his typewriter kills that typewriter. Mm-hmm. And all of that stuff is much more, you know, kind of kind of a pure science fiction story in a lot of ways, but also it's so married to the idea of drug use and drug addiction and, and insanity and all of that stuff. Like all of these things are just tangled together. It's not like any given scene is like, well, this scene is about Burroughs as or this, this is the, the scene that is the biography of William Burroughs, and this is the scene that's about artistic, uh, you know, the, the the subconscious of the artist, and this is the scene that's about this weird story about inner zone and its population. Like, all of that 
stuff is mingled together in a delicious way. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think... I mean, I think it's a difficult movie. Um, I think it's one of those movies that if, if you're not that familiar with Burroughs and you're not that familiar with Naked Lunch as, as a work of fiction, which I'm certainly not, I don't want to pretend to be, um, that you almost have to let the movie happen to you. You know, that you just, you sit there with eyes wide, much like Alex from Clockwork Orange, <laughs> and just let the images pour into your brain and see if somewhere on a subconscious level your brain can kind of make sense of this shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the more you know about Burroughs and, and hearing, not hearing, but reading Cronenberg talk about the making of this movie and his his perception of Burroughs as well as what the movie meant to him. I think informs my viewing of it. Like when I first saw this movie, I thought it was a lot of nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was fascinating nonsense, but I thought it was nonsense. And I, so I, I enjoyed it on that level. And I, and I think you can enjoy it on that level. Um, as I've gotten older and a little bit more informed about, you know, Burroughs, both his his literary work and and who he was as a person, and also seeing Cronenberg's work and what the the kinds of things that continue to interest him throughout, whether his movies are horror or not, mm-hmm. there are themes that run run this, you know, and a lot of it has to do with identity and who you truly are, as opposed to how you present yourself and that kind of thing. Um, you know, uh, I think that Naked Lunch is you know I say that I'm gonna say something outrageous and then if I saw uh like um history of violence or eastern promises or something I would totally backtrack on this in a second but I think Naked Lunch may be my second favorite Cronenberg film oh Um, that's quite interesting yeah because I just recently you know just for this show and it had probably been no lie Duncan it had probably been a decade since I watched this movie. Yeah. And seeing it again with more informed eyes, I suppose, Mm -hmm. I was like, this movie is fucking brilliant. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's from, you know, how they're capturing in a, in a fictionalized way, um, how they're capturing Burroughs story or, just the audacity of some of the imagery in this movie. Yeah, yeah. You know, like when um, Bill Lee is with his lover Kiki, mm-hmm. uh, which, by the way, if I were going to have a gay lover, I would want <laughs> him to be named Kiki. Kiki. <laughs> which, by the way, was also the name of Burroughs' lover at the time he was writing Naked Launch, I believe. Ah, right. Did not know so, that. So, yeah. So, again, uh, Again, like the more you know about Burroughs, the better a movie this is. It really is, mm. um, because then it's just like, oh yeah, this is totally like this movie makes a whole lot more sense than it seems to on the surface. The mm-hmm. more you know about that shit, but you don't have to. Um, but you should. But you don't have to. Um, but so I like the scene uh, where. He he is found by Kiki on the streets with this broken typewriter, and is taken to the guy who can fix anything. Mm-hmm. And when he pulls it out of the the furnace, it's this glowing mugwump head. Yeah, and it's just like, how on earth 
did Cronenberg make this happen? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like this movie, it looks good. Peter Weller is incredible in this. Role. Oh, he's, like, yeah. Oh, I, yeah. So good. The movie doesn't work without him. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I, it's one of those cases where I don't think there's a better actor because of kind of the cold delivery that Peter Weller, Weller is kind of capable of. Uh, and I think Weller is just by nature kind of an, an intellectual guy. Um, you know, I think he holds like two or three degrees and stuff like that. Like he he teaches archaeology somewhere. Oh, I, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, like something like that. It's or, or anthropological archaeology or something. Like he is he is a very studied man, and there that really helps with his portrayal of of Burroughs. I think or Bill Lee, mm-hmm. um, which by the way was also the pseudonym of William Burroughs. Ah, right. So, um, Bill Lee, uh, you know, as a character is kind of fascinating because of how detached he seems from it all. Like, even when he's at his most, you know, kind of electric in moments, like probably the scene when he and uh, uh, Judy Davis's character are taking the um, aquatic... Uh, centipede powder together mm-hmm. and are caressing the uh, typewriter which turns into just basically a big fuck machine yeah. and <laughs> you know it. it's just it, like it's just crazy but it, it's also I think the closest I will ever come to doing heroin mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you know I mean maybe not I don't know I'm, you know I'm not so old that I guess I wouldn't do it but <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I just don't have a connection. Um, but yeah, like the whole movie is just this series of like these dreamlike images that seems to much like a lot of Cronenberg's work seems to bypass your consciousness and go straight to your subconscious. And the watching this movie again, like I said, it just felt like you're in the presence of genius. And there are things that I think are kind of missteps here and there, but I think the work as a whole is just kind of staggering. Mm -hmm. You know, like as I was watching it, I was like, man, I don't know that, like certainly myself, uh, I would not be capable of this kind of artistry. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm a, I'm a real blue collar kind of writer. I don't get this heady with shit. And, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> maybe in my walking around time I think some interesting things but it never goes to this place like Cronenberg is a unique intellect Burroughs is a unique in- intellect and like you said they, it, it seems an entirely appropriate marriage mm-hmm. of these two minds and it has produced something that I just don't think any other two collaborators could and you know the world is kind of the better for it I think you know, the, the metaphors that you see about Burroughs' initial denial of his homosexu- homosexuality, and yet he's haunted by it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even the story about, uh, you know, his family being a family of perverts and stuff. And he goes into this long story about Bobo. And all that stuff is just, like, any scene taken out of context is just feels meaningless. And yet there's... There's a poetry to that language. Um, it's a very Walt Whitman-esque poetry, though, where mm-hmm. it is as much about piss and shit as it is about 
the loveliness of a, a flower or something. You know, there's a beauty to the language, but it's often describing terrible things. Yeah. And it's, yeah, I, I, I just think this movie is front to back fascinating, even when it doesn't totally gel. And I think when it does gel, I don't know that I've ever seen a movie that's like a biography of someone that gets at their essence more so than like, here's the shit they did. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like the biography of like, what was the, the theory of everything about Hawking Yes, and kind of his romance with his wife, which is a fine movie, but that is just like, Hey, here's Stephen Hawking. He had a disease. You know, it's, it's a very rote kind of story. It's, it's good. And it's well told. Naked Lunch is a biography that's like, here is this man's soul. Get a good, <laughs> hard look at the darkness within this man. And that's what this movie gives you. It, it, it Sometimes it doesn't make sense, and sometimes the imagery just flies right over me. Like, I'm still not 100% sure what all the agent shit is all about in this movie. And, you know, the again, the typewriters attacking one another because he had written a thing on one typewriter... And the other typewriter told him, well, now the, that agent knows things about your soul that we can't have it know. Yeah. And, you know, like, some of that stuff I'm still juggling in my head. But, I mean, goddamn, if it isn't a movie that demands that you actively participate in the weirdness of it, in a way, you mm-hmm. know? Going back on my previous statement of sometimes you just let this movie happen to you. But at a certain <laughs> point... You've got either you're just going to totally detach from the experience of watching this movie and just be like, you know what, this is all bullshit, mm-hmm. and I just can't watch any more of it, or you're going to get engaged to the point where you're going to start to look for those threads of meaning, and the more you tug at it, the weirder shit's going to get. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think, um, from, from my point of view, watching see when you like, watch this movie, the, the, there's a couple of things out with, I mean, with certainly the the original story itself and the the visual eye and the the expert filmmaking of a David Cronenberg are, are are huge points for me. Something that stands out like incredibly for me is the the Howard Shore score as well for the movie, which works so fucking well. It just kind of it just sits there. It gives it that kind of jazzy feel, which kind of permeates throughout the movie as well, which I think enhances it as well. And I think that's I was coming back to, to watch again. I thought that was one of the things where instantly I was like, I, you know, I, once again, why why is it taking me so long to come back to this movie? Um, and I think like his his work kind of intrinsically with with Cronenberg since quite an early early point in their career, uh, Cronenberg's career anyway, through, has been something that I think, uh, to me it shows the dexterity of him as a composer and his ability to marry specific um, musical ideas along with Cronenberg who is not the easiest of director to marry anything with because he has such a, a distinct visual style a distinct narrative style um, I think that that certainly aids. Um, to me there, there, there is a lot going on here, there's a lot to like you've already mentioned about this, to, to make great art you, you need to experience 
you need to experience whether that's experience drugs, alcohol, um, sex with women, sex with men. You know, this ability to you need to be vulnerable in order to 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 get the ideas or the the, the feelings which will sculpt your throughout the life experience almost, and. Um, that, that to me is the interesting thing about Lee as a character in this movie is how he starts off with this you know this idea of him sitting with two other aspiring writers who are telling him you know that he needs to he should take he's, he should try his hand at writing because you know why be an exterminator and that great line that you mentioned earlier on which is how he basically how he sees this idea of writing or how he sees the world away from his opinion or his view on it and then how how he then approaches writing at the point of he approaches writing after taking the drugs um, and that great scene of where he, he almost comes back to the real world he leaves you know the, the inner zone and appears back in um, New York almost coming out of his binge because he is he's gone cold turkey he's come off the the drugs and he appears back with his friends and he has a bag which he believes is the mangled you know <laughs> the, the mangled remains of his typewriter and his friends say to him you know what's in that bag and he's like oh just you know it's just my writing materials and they open it and it's nothing but drugs it's all manner of drugs and needles and you know hallucinogens and all that in this bag and basically that's that's what he has taken in order for him to write Naked Lunch, which is something he can't even remember doing. And, they, and the two writers are reading it, just going, "This is incredible!" You know, this read this line. This is incredible. Um, this idea of experience to to be able to create art. The idea as well of the the William Lee character struggling with this idea of homosexuality. How he is at first when it is mentioned by the the typewriter to him. In fact, he's it's mentioned even earlier on because he's hit upon by one of his writer friends is gay and he hits on him and he, he does kind of, he says maybe me and you should join in on this and you know he's almost repulsed by that suggestion but later on where where he ends up with having the you know the romantic relationship with Kiki um, you know where, where that character ends up through his when he is on drugs and blacks out and doesn't remember saying things, the things he does see puts him across as being gay um, and this is this idea of how he interacts with the character of uh, Cloquette played by Julian Sands Goddamn Julian Sands the fucking warlock is in this movie um, yeah, that is absolutely correct yeah, the warlock is in this movie and um, he is a, a very strange character who kind of Wines and dines Lee earlier on in the movie, then kind of disappears from the scene. And when Lee then finds out that, you know, in order to track down this most elusive Dr. Benway, uh, he needs to contact Cloquette because he knows he's a good friend. Um, he basically serves up Kiki as bait. So they go to his house, and this was the scene I was talking about earlier on. They go to his house and they're all sitting and they're all chatting and um, he obviously broaches the subject of, of Benway with Cloquette who is not interested, he's interested in Kiki and uh, eventually he says, you know he gets the information he wants, he tells you know, Kiki, go with him and see your parrots and he goes to the toilet and when he comes out he hears 
what sounds like sex sounds. And he opens the room, and at first we get the glimpse of horror in his eye, which I think is incredible, because um, like we mentioned before, Peter Weller, a guy who's fairly deadpan. He acts in a particular way, doesn't emote too much, but that is not to say that he can't emote. Um, I think actually the, the one of the more powerful emotional scenes in this one is the single tear that rolls down his face at the very end when he kills Joan again. Yeah, um, yep, yep, yep. I think it's incredibly powerful, and that once again testament to how great an actor he is. But we see the shock and the horror in his face, and then the camera pans round, and Julian Sands' Cloquette character is a giant bug, a giant centipede sort of bug, and his his tentacles or or feet or crawlers or whatever you call those creepy things are actually in Kiki's face and this is the true element of body horror in this movie that you know the all Cronenberg body horror movies have that one scene which is like here is the here is the the centerpiece the masterpiece of body horror in this movie and everything else is around it Um, and this is a scene where basically the the bug appears to be consuming and sodomising the character at the same time with this horrible expression of glee I think that's wonderfully fucking creepy I mean it's dark as fuck I mean it's so oh it's so so uncomfortable to watch I think it's incredible yeah yeah Yeah. I mean like I think you have to go back to the fly Mm -hmm. to get this level of kind of the the gore that level of gore that this movie sometimes employs um, but I think you have to go back further to something like Rabid yeah. <laughs> for it to be this disturbing. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's just, it, it's not just that it's gory. It's gory in a really unpleasant, disquieting way. Yeah. And, oh man, it's so good, Duncan. This movie is so good. It really fucking is. I, I, I consider myself to be very lucky to be chatting to someone that I know enjoys Cronenberg as much as I do um, and I think that's I think that when, you, when you're talking about his back catalogue of work and you're talking about the importance of a movie like Rabbit or Shivers or the, the importance of a movie like The Brood or Scanners or Videodrome or The Fly um, arguably the greatest horror remake of all time um, and one of the greatest movies in the 1980s you know when you're talking about that and then you carry over into a brand new decade where certain certain genre types were still stuck in their kind of stuck in this 80s rut in the early 90s and then you go to see this incredibly artistic um, serious dark twisted um movie which just works on so many so many fucking levels and and to know that you know Cronenberg is the man basically behind this setting out all the all the the pieces on the chessboard and then and then just doing what he does best um it is an incredibly bold move for a director of like him to, to do this movie after the fly because so many directors after receiving the mainstream success that the fly would give them would go off and do, you know, more mainstream projects. That's how Hollywood works, and Cronenberg has always been removed from that, and has 
really tackled the things that interest him and I think it's testament to when you see this one he had an idea he'd been working on the movie for six years and when it finally happens it just stands out as one of the top tier movies of not only that man's career but I, I genuinely think of when I think of movies like um, when I think of directors of a similar ilk and I think of like people like Lynch and Eraserhead um, as being a great example of of that sort of style of movie which is just dark, it's bleak, it's twisted, it's uncomfortable, it's witty, it's clever, it's incredibly well shot, it's well acted, you know, th- these sorts of levels as well. I, I, I mean, this, this to me is... Well, yeah, I, 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 I would say as easily, it's probably in my top three. I don't know if I'd go high, as high as top two, but I think it's in my top three, Cronenberg. And two and three are so fucking close, there's very little differentiating between them. It's it's not a movie for everyone. I would, I would stress that. I think if you like your movies very on the surface, you know exactly what you're getting. You don't really want to think. And that is not... Uh, that's not a condemnation some people just don't want to think when they watch a movie and there are plenty of movies out there that are geared to this one this one is the one that almost almost dares you to to kind of delve beneath the surface and really insert yourself into it I, I mean as as someone who I mean both of us like you are an author um, so you you pour your soul into into the books you write. Uh, for a very long period of time, I was a musician, and that was my creative drive. And I wrote music and wrote lyrics and all the rest. And and I, I would try to insert myself in there. And you tend to find that the most creative you are is not when you're happy and content. It's when when your back's against the wall, or you really there has been some sort of trauma, or something has happened. Um, and a negative aspect tends to be I don't know about yourself but ten- tended to be the times that I was most fruitful and most creative in what I was doing and I think that you know that th- it has just made me want to check out the book it has just made me want to find out more about the, the, the author's life which I've seen interviews with him you know defending his his, his copious drug use um, on TV and why he thought it wasn't a bad thing and you know why it was a, a life experience a life choice etc and there are a few authors now that kind of that kind of have that kind of aura of danger about them um, they are kind of they, they are a kind of dying breed um, and yeah I think this movie just it delivers so much I think there is I think it's to its credit that it, it does flirt and at times very much put this idea of of homosexuality in an era where like 91 like the the AIDS thing was a huge huge subject which still wasn't really getting talked about um but people knew it and it was a problem and it was an issue and to have a movie that handles the subject matter it does the the imagery that it does and does it in a way which is not necessarily ramming it down your throat but not hiding it either under layers and layers of other things it's there it's it's definitely at the forefront of the movie without it being attention grabbing or attention stealing to the narrative and I think that's once again as a testament to how it was written and how it was directed I think the movie's fucking phenomenal yeah I mean I, I tend to be a little bit resistant of the idea that you have to be 
that you have to live a life of turmoil to produce great art. Uh-huh. But that said, that kind of trauma and turmoil certainly makes for, like, there, it's grist for the mill, for sure. And, you know, you deal with someone like Burroughs, who is this perfect marriage of insanely talented as a writer with a gift for, um, uh, I think it's cut up style is in, you know, the, the biography of that, uh, of, of that audio, uh, documentary gets into this a bit more, how he would intentionally rearrange words and sentences within a paragraph to get to the most like left of center way to describe or present material. Um, which is really interesting. So you, you, it's this marriage of a brilliant writer coupled with the demons that haunted him, whether it's murdering his wife or the drug addiction or whatever. And yeah, I mean, it produces incredible material. And then you put that in the hands of a director who is famously intellectual and, and fascinated by the subconscious, like Cronenberg. And it produces something like Naked Lunch, which... You know, like we were saying earlier about John Dice at the end, there's not a lot of movies out there that feel like John Dice at the end does. But John Dice at the end is fun. Mm-hmm. Naked Lunch is raw and dirty. Like it is, it is a movie that that gives you a warts and all kind of feeling about you know whether you want to call it the artistic process or drug addiction or whatever it is, and I would. I would argue that there's an element of addiction that goes into writing of some kind mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, if it's what you feel like you should be doing and you don't do it, you feel terrible if you're not doing it. Um, and I, I, you know, I damn Duncan, I'd like <laughs> watching this movie again. I yeah, cause I watched it just last night before we recorded today. And I got to tell you, man, I mean, the entire time I was watching it for the first like 20 minutes, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this being really good. And by the end of it, I was like, I didn't remember it being like this. Yeah. And oh, oh, (laughs) so good. Yeah. Well, um, the thing about this movie is we could easily and I'm not joking. There's very few movies that I use the lines. I could easily speak about this movie for five minutes and I still feel like I wouldn't necessarily be doing justice or interpreting everything that could be interpreted out of the movie. There's so much to mine in here, but we unfortunately don't have five hours to to discuss the movie. You could really go, like, and and maybe this is a podcast for another day, Mm -hmm. but you could almost go scene by scene and just talk about, like, well, here's what I think this scene means in terms of the rest of the movie and also in terms of you know, the man behind the movie and all that stuff. So yeah, you could, this is a movie you could pick apart for hours. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, but uh, it kind of feels academic at this point to ask you, Bo, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to ask for grades now. I'm going to come out. Uh, it should be no surprise. This is a five from me. Um, I absolutely loved this movie. I think it is incredible. And if it has taken me to record this show, to finally get my finger out my ass to watch the movie again, then it's probably the best decision I've done this year. Um, I can't wait to watch it again. I actually can't wait to watch it again. And check out the the um, the the 
the interview that you were talking about with Iggy Pop where he's reading over his, his work, so I, I can't wait to check that out. Bo, at this point I need to ask you for your grade, what would you grade Naked Lunch? Uh, one star. Um, <laughs> you lie, sir, you lie. I think it is confusing, <laughs> and I don't like movies that talk down to me. Um... No, it's five stars. This is, like I said, I, I I think the best movie Cronenberg ever did, for to totally personal reasons, is The Fly. I uh -huh. think it, it's an almost, like you said, it's an almost perfect remake of a movie. Um, I would probably argue The Thing is better, but... Um, yeah, but, I, you know, in the long history of Cronenberg films, I really think this is the other movie of his that gets at something that is almost you know it, we began the show talking about unfilmable novels um i don't think that naked lunch is necessarily unfilmable mm -hmm. uh, obviously cronenberg i think does a, a marvelous job of it but i think more than that capturing the anarchy of an artist's mind as he's in free fall is what this movie captures best. And I don't even know how you describe it on paper, much less in, in a film. Yeah. And I think Cronenberg manages to do that. I, I think this movie is actually an incredible achievement. Um, and, and Cronenberg is, is he's always challenging, even when he's not great. Like we talked about maps to the stars on this very show. We did indeed. Uh, yeah. And I, or no, did we talk about that on, DBC scene? No, Match to the Stars it was, was yeah, it was on this one, yeah. It was part of my uh, Hollywood After Dark, or the Darker Side of Hollywood show that I did with uh, Nightcrawler yeah. and Starry Eyes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think Maps to the, the Stars is a very interesting movie, uh, because all of Cronenberg's movies tend to be. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it is deeply flawed in a lot of ways. Um, and Naked Lunch just there are minor quibbles I have with it, but I felt like, I feel like if I were watching this with Cronenberg, I would be able to turn to him and be like, so what is like when Roy Scheider takes off the, the, the woman <laughs> yeah. costume he's wearing, can you explain that a little bit more to me? Because I, <laughs> I think I kind of know that it has to do with this idea of like subdued sexuality, but also not sure. And, you know, but I feel like, Cronenberg could give me a good answer to that. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's my fault, not his. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's an incredible movie, man. I, I love Naked Lunch in a way that I did not prior to watching it again. Ah, fantastic. Right, uh, Bo, this is the point of the show where I ask you to pimp yourself, sir. Um, where can people check out the stuff that you do? Uh, Dickerson Pike. I'm usually there... <laughs> After 9 p.m. Oh, different pimp. Um, oh, yeah, different pimp. <laughs> okay, sorry, sorry. Uh, you can find uh, all the shows that I am involved with. Uh, the, you know, Shotcast, Duncan and Bo Come Correct, and One To Be Named in the Future, as well as guest appearances on a bunch of other shows uh, on legionpodcasts.com and sdfgaming.com uh, for all the video game stuff. And um, then... You know, if you want to see a movie that I wrote, you could uh, rent Lost After Dark from any of the digital digital video platforms that show movies digitally. It's on all of those. So um, check it out or or not. There we go. That's, that's I, I, would, I, I, would, I would say check it out, but uh, there we go. Uh, thank you very much to my guest, Bo. 
Oh, this has been awesome. A, a great double bill. Thank you very much to the listeners for, for picking those those uh, those movies for us to discuss on this show. I'm going to take a very short break just now. When I return, I'm closing out the show right after this. You're listening to the podcast Under the Stairs. And you've been listening to the podcast Under the Stairs, episode number 72. Um, thank you very much to my guest, Mr. Bo Ransdell, who joined me on this very first listener suggestion um, episode of December 2015, where we took a look at John Dies at the End from 2012, directed by Don Coscarelli, and Naked Lunch by David Cronenberg from 1991. I hope you enjoyed the discussions of those movies. It's always a blast to have Bo Ransdell over. Keep a close eye on the Legion podcast feed because Duncan and Bo come correct holiday episode will be dropping in the next week and a bit um, a nice way to close out the year listening to myself and Bo do battle over who has the better suggestion for a holiday movie the other one hasn't seen and I'll be honest both um, both suggested titles that were thrown at each other we're fairly confident we're going to win so that could uh, prove to be quite an interesting battle you guys will need to check it that should see who is victorious so yeah like i said at the start of this episode the next episode that will drop episode number 73 will feature myself and ryan lewis from grief Jeff radio covering oh my god black christmas um from the 1970s it was your suggestion your pick your choice from the poll of Christmas horror movie you wanted to hear discussed on this show so I can't wait to bring you that show in one week's time the following week it will be the week of Christmas ladies and gentlemen so we we might I might actually drop some bonus stuff that week I'm not entirely sure but um, in time for Christmas on Christmas Eve I will drop the, the pieces commentary or the commentary that replaces the pieces commentary if by any chance um, the Baz is still on hiatus at that point but there will be a Christmas commentary for you guys to check in. Hopefully you can shove it on while you're wrapping your presents last minute after rushing back from the shops with those last minute Christmas presents that you should have bought months ago but you didn't because you thought you'd have plenty of time and look what's happened. That vein in your forehead will not go down. That twitch in your eye will not stop and now you're shouting at your loved ones like a maniac. Oh, I love Christmas time. It's awesome. Um, yeah, so, uh, like I say, tons of things still to come up before this end of the year. There will be no show in between Christmas and New Year, so don't look for one. I'm not dropping one. I'm going to enjoy a week away from work and a week away from podcasting, but uh, I will return in the following week bringing back some more podcasts under the stairs, kicking off 2016 in style as I do a show dedicated to my top 10 movies of 2015. And then after that, I will probably let you guys know what the next month or so shows are going to look like. There's going to be a ton of stuff coming up. Uh, some really interesting shows that I can't wait to bring you. Uh, so I hope hope all you guys uh, will enjoy that I hope you're enjoying your December first and foremost though um, it can be quite a stressful time of the year for quite a lot of people and the podcast Under the Stairs hopes that you're having a fairly good time, you're enjoying yourself and uh, remember it, it's just another month of the year, ultimately <laughs> at the end of the day it's just another month of the year and you're just a little poorer at the end of it so, uh, with that in mind, I'm going to leave. 
just now. A, a nice short, sharp exit. This show has ran quite long, but hopefully you've enjoyed the content. Once again, thank you very much for checking out this show. If this is your first time listening to the show, there is a ton of ways that you can follow us and check us out. You can check us out on iTunes, and like I said at the start of this episode, you take a couple of minutes and leave us a review over there. If it's five stars, for example, the more of them we get, the higher up the ratings we go, and that just means that more people will check out this show blindly, like you have, new listener. Um, if you want to check us out on Stitcher, we are on Stitcher Smart Radio. We are also a proud member of Legion Podcast Network. You can check us out over there, surrounded by fantastic shows dedicated to horror, gaming and movies. It's, it's I can't say enough about Legion Podcast Network. Like I was saying to Bo at the, at the start when I introduced him, he is... Uh, a great guy that has worked tirelessly to provide some really cool content so if you like this show chances are you'll like other shows over there so go and check it out and um, you can follow us on twitter at tputzcast you can follow us on facebook facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash tputzcast check out our brand new website www.tputzcast.com Ooh, you can leave us feedback and uh, potential suggestions for Bazzy's Basement, a segment we're hoping to bring back. You can email us at podcastunderthestairs at gmail.com. Please take care of yourselves out there. I will speak to you in one week's time. But until then, this is Duncan McLeish broadcasting live from Under the Stairs, signing off. <laughs>
Vixen, Comet, Cupid, Donder, Blitzen. You can turn them all into venison. Tails, not those things, no medicine. I don't care about coal in my stocking. Sugar plum fairies, a jingle bell rocking. Maybe I could use a little ho, 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 ho. We'll just see how it goes. when I say skank, I'm talking about the ska dance and nothing else. Merry Christmas.